if you've uh, got your Bible, you might want to jot down scriptures, because I have a bunch today. There's, sometimes people go, you never use your Bible, and other times people go, man, I can't even keep up with all your scriptures. Yes, that's true. I am an inconsistent person. Um, a long time ago, somebody said the most important thing when you're up there speaking is to let people know who you are, to hear your voice, that you come through. Because that way, they'll know it's real and authentic and genuine in your quest to represent what God has for us. Because I believe all pastors want to give the voice and the word of God. But I also know that you guys, no matter what size church, no matter how much you, you know, just say, no, I just love Jesus, so that's why I go to church. The reason different churches exist, a big part of it, is because you either connect or you don't connect with the voice up front. And I never, it's like I always say, we don't do anything like super crazy on Easter that we don't do the rest of the year. Like people are like, should we do a two-hour musical extravaganza? I'm always like, no. (laughs) Yes, we could probably draw in some people, but that's not what we're going to do the rest of the year. So let's let people see who we are. And that's where one of my core values is letting people see who we are. And that really takes us into our message today. Um, we're in the middle of what I'm calling Mission 2020, and it's understanding our mission statement as it's written in the lobby, which is creating a safe place where people can discover God in an environment of love, acceptance, and forgiveness. For those of you who haven't been here in three years, you go, wait, didn't you do this three years ago? Yes, but I promise you it's different. So if you take notes and compare, there's some differences. The vision and the mission is still the same. But how many of you have been here less than three years, attending our church less than three years? I believe when I looked through our thing, it was about 50% of the people have been with us less than three years, which means they've come, they've connected, they like something about us, but they don't necessarily know and understand our vision. So I was like, I want people to understand going into next year, I just, we finished a series on change because I believe God is stirring something within us that's going to change some things. And I don't know what that looks like, but I believe that. And then if we're going to change, then we have to go back and re-understand who we are so that we're making sure that the changes we're making are pointing us to where God is taking us in the next season of our lives. So today, last week we talked about creating a safe place. Today we're going to talk about discovering God. So how do we discover God? One thing that always makes me nervous is when somebody has a new revelation. And I'm like, nope, the book is closed. We don't need a new revelation. However, fresh something a new perspective on something that's already in the scripture is great. Share something new. Share something that you learned. Share something that really struck you. How many of you have read through a Bible passage and then maybe read the passage three, four, five years later and got something different, saw something new? Okay, so I'm not the only one. Anybody here on a Bible through the year plan, like you try to read the Bible through in a year? A couple of people. I have done this. I'm a slow reader, so even my Bible through in a year plan usually takes me about 14 months, 15 months, even if I do it all the way through. And I go through phases where I go, I'm going to do this, and I start, and then you get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you're like, ugh. (laughs) And then you, you push through, and then you get to some of the minor prophets, and you go, ooh, those guys are weird. That guy cooked food over poop, and that guy roamed around the city naked for, let's not do those things, people. And then you keep going, and then you get to the Gospels, and you're like, oh, this part's good, I like this. And then you get into what Paul's telling you, and you're like, that's painful, I don't want to have to do that with my life. I don't want to be a living sacrifice. That means someone's going to kill me. But we do, and we press on, and we get through, and then I go back later, and I read it again, a year or two years later, and there's something in there that I'm like, 
wow, how did I never see that before that he's speaking to me? And I'll tell you why that sometimes happens. Because the Holy Spirit is illuminating things to you that you are ready to receive. They say that if you pursue math and you just keep going, you can go all the way through high school and get to algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, and you can do it. However, if you sit down with a five-year-old, the average typical five-year-old, I'm not talking about some genius child, but, and you open it up and you start showing them algebra, they may recognize that's an A. Good job. Because they haven't been prepared and equipped. They're not in the place to understand it. And yet my son, who went far beyond in math what I ever did, it was just routine for him. And we would talk about it. And he would explain things to me. No, 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 Dad, this is just this. This is really just algebra with this added in. And I'm like, no, I still don't understand. And the reason why he understood it is because he did this and this and this, and he did the step-by-step things. He's in a place to learn and grow, but you take somebody right now and say, here, explain this to me, and you open it up, and it's quantum physics. They can't. There's places in our life where the Holy Spirit is ready to speak to us, and at that time, you're ready to receive, and other times, you read through it, and you're not quite ready. That's why I believe we're supposed to go through this series again, is because I think we have people now that maybe three years ago weren't ready, and it's not that you weren't that you're bad or not right, it's that we're in a different place today in our life than we were three years ago. How many of you have had a major situation in your life change in the past three years? Maybe a new birth, a death, a marriage, anything like that in the last three years. About 80% of you, something has changed. Maybe you moved. Maybe you graduated. Maybe you started a new program. Maybe you changed jobs. Things happen. And the Holy Spirit desires to speak to us. So, How do we discover God? There's many paths, but there's only one true way. Man was created to know God personally. John 17, 3 says this, And this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God, Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I don't know how to make it much more clear than that, but I'm going to try. Man is created to know God personally. God is not just a foreign concept. And I think sometimes we've done a disservice because we believe that there's this guy up in the sky that created things and then disassociates with us. That he's just not there. That I believe that something happened, but then I'm not sure what it was after that. And we do that because we didn't have the encounter that we wanted. It's the old, well, if God is real, then do this. So in other words, if God's real, he has to do what you command him to do. How is that God? My dogs don't even do what I command them to do. How can I expect God to? And I'm much bigger than them. And yet that's how we view things. We want to command God to do what we want. If he's real, then you'll do this. Man is sinful by nature and needs a way to connect. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We don't like to talk about sin because that means I did something wrong and I don't want to feel bad. 
And if you know me at all, I am not a person who believes that we are supposed to be shamed because I do not believe that shame comes from the Holy Spirit. And many of us were raised in a culture of shame. Shame on you. You're bad. But that's not at all what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin so that we can be free from shame, not dwell in that shame. So that we can be free from that and not be bound by that and have that constrict who we are and who we're becoming. We are free from shame when we begin to understand the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us to help us to connect with God, to be able to walk away from our sin. Because when I am stuck in shame, then I'm constantly thinking, how do I get out of this? What do I have to do? But God doesn't want us to be about what do I have to do. It's about who am I becoming? Third thing. Jesus is God's provision for sin. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if man is created to know God, man is sinful by nature, and Jesus is God's provision for our sin, then A plus B equals C, going back to my math analogy before, we have this idea that we have to do this and this, but it's not about doing, it's about understanding you were created for a purpose and a reason. And that purpose and that reason ultimately is to worship God. And too oftentimes we don't understand that the purpose that I exist for is to glorify God. And when I don't understand that, then I'm spent, I spend my life spinning my wheels trying to find out why he wants, what he wants from me. So finally, the last thing to discover God is if you confess your sins and believe in your heart, you personally can be forgiven and connect with God. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. To who? To as many. Not to just this one or that one, but to all who receive him. We don't get to exclude We don't get to decide. We don't get to choose. Well, they're not doing the things I want them to. But to as many as received them. I'm sorry. As many as received him, not them. To them he gave the right to become the children of God. Spiritual people oftentimes will say, well, Jesus was a good guy or he was a great teacher, but so was Buddha or Muhammad or somebody else. Well, actually, the C.S. Lewis argument against that which many of you know if you've ever done any apologetics classes. It's kind of Apologetics 101. It says, Jesus could not be a good guy. That's not possible. Because here's what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but you cannot come with some patronizing nonsense that says he was a great human teacher. He took that, he left, he has not left that option to us. In other words, he took that off the table, because a great human doesn't call themselves God and say, I am the way you can connect with God. And so if you can't come to the point where he is the son of God, then you can't say he was even a good man because he'd be a pretty bad person because only a very bad person tells you I'm the only way you're going to find God. And if you don't go through me, you don't have a chance. That's actually a very bad person that says that. 
And so if, I'm going all the way back to the if-then things, back to my math analogy. If this, then this. If man was created to know God personally, if man is sinful by nature, if Jesus is the provision for God's sin, and if I have acceptance when I confess and believe, then I have to know that Jesus is the way that I discover God. So if, none of the, if one of those things isn't true, and then, then it knocks off the entire if-then analogy. But if those things are true, you don't even have to raise your hand, but how many of you know in your mind you're a sinner? How many of you know in your mind you still don't have life altogether? It may look like it on the outside, but you still don't have it all together. If that's what we can admit to, then how do we not say, I've got to know who God is, and my way to discover who God is is through Jesus. And that's why I say, you can disagree with me on all kinds of theological things, and we can still worship together. You can say, I believe in this, or I believe in that, or I believe... You know, I've had people in my church who both believe that I side with them when one say, Jonah's just an analogy, and other people say, Jonah's absolutely true, and they both believe that I believe exactly like they do. I used to work with a guy. He was a, um, a good guy. He was Mormon. But it all, I'd always cringe when he'd say, you know, Jeff and I believe, I'd be like, oh, no, what's he going to say? What is he going to say? Because I didn't know where he was going with that next sentence. Because you know what? We didn't exactly agree on everything. And we were friends. And we did have many similarities. But we had some vastly different points of view on eternal kingdoms and celestial thrones and the number of angels that are going to be under my command. We had really differing views on that. But see, you don't have to agree with everything I say. You don't have to agree with all my theology. But it comes back to this. Can you agree that we need God? Can you agree that Jesus is our Savior? Jesus is our healer? I've been asked by a few different people to do a series on Jesus is our healer, so I started compiling notes. That's, it was going to bag it off till January, but now I think we're going to start on that in November because I think it does go well with Thanksgiving. Jesus is our baptizer with the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit's alive and active and moving still today in the church. It's not a thing that was that he left, but he's still moving. And Jesus is our, our returning king. People say, it says, uh, you know, when is Jesus coming back? I read this book about, and they'll tell me why this code. And I'm always like, he's not a code to be cracked. He's not a mystery that you're going to solve. He says, no one knows the date or the time of when I'm going to return. Not even me, only the Father. So one day, and this is an analogy, people. You don't need to send me an email. Jesus is going to get up. I know he never sleeps. But he's going to get up, and God's going to say, today's the day. He's going to go, now? Now. Boom. Jesus is coming back. And people say, well, if he's coming back, why hasn't he come back yet? Well, because the time is not right. The time is not right. The time will be right, and Jesus will return. If we can agree on those four basic tenets, then you don't have to agree with my interpretation of everything else in that book. Because though I have studied, and though I have read the book, and though I have read commentaries and scholars, I don't have all the answers. I'm not the Bible answer man. And if you ever listen to that old program on the radio we used to as a family, 
I discovered something. Sometimes the Bible answer man disagreed with my dad. And my dad was a pastor. How can this be? And it opened my eyes to, oh, they're both good men and they both love God and they don't necessarily agree 100%. And it gave me the freedom to then tell you, you don't have to agree with everything I say. We can still worship together. In fact, it tells us in Scripture, it's good that we worship together. It's good that we come around a table together. It's not good that Jeff creates clones of himself, but it's really good that I help create disciples of Jesus, just as you're called to do. So Jesus is either the Son of God, or we must dismiss him as completely crazy. Our world system of morals is built around the very idea and ideals that he came to espouse. So we can't say, no, I'm not really going to worship Jesus. I'm just going to raise my children to be moral. I'm just going to be kind. I'm just going to do good. Where do you get your concept of good? Jesus even looks and says, who is good? No one but the Father. And this is Jesus saying, hey, I'm not even that good, you guys. Just my dad. Who is good? What is good? What is, who gets to define that? And ever-changing, constantly evolving and morphing is our society's ideas of what is good and right and okay and moral and ethical. And it's constantly changing based on who's influential, who's powerful, who's setting the standards. But if we say, I'm going to base on trying to be more like Jesus, the church still has to constantly infuse their own perspective, their own one-twisted piece of something that they've taken out of context and they do this but not this and this but not this and I say stop let's look and see who is Jesus I'm not saying throw out the Old Testament what I am saying is the law has been fulfilled in the very one that we say we follow in fact I'm so much into the Old Testament I'm doing a series right now with the youth on Sunday nights that starts literally tonight on the Ten Commandments and what this means, and what this looks like in your life. However, some people don't realize this, but I believe that the Ten Commandments are an exact picture of the Gospel. The first four commandments are how I respond to God. The next six are how I respond to you, the people around me. And so if I look at it that way, that's the very thing that Jesus came and says, here's how I respond to my Father, here's how I respond to those around me. That's what his whole life was about. And so as we do this, I'm going to teach out of the Old Testament a passage that literally is thousands of years old, but still teaches us how to respond to God, how to respond to each other. That's what Jesus wants for us, is for us to know that he is God, but how do we respond to God the Father, and how do we respond to each other? To help people discover God, I have to create a place, and you're helping me do this, but I have to create a place that's open to people with differing theological ideas. It'd be a lot easier if everybody just agreed with what I said and did what I did because I'm right. Ever had, ever heard the words or said the words, I'm the parent, that's why? Anybody? Oh, good, three of us, okay. <laughs> the rest of you had really great parents and that never said those things. Why can't I? Why not? Why not? Especially with my daughter. She was the queen of negotiation. But why not? Because at some point, well, you know what? It's easier if we could do that with everybody. If I could just say to the church, listen, you do what I say. And you do, but that's not what God has called us to. That's not a healthy leader. A healthy leader says, hey, here's some ideas. Now what are you going to do with them? Where are you going to go with them? 
The very idea of an ethic moral code comes from a place where we seek to be better people. Not better than, but better people. Creating a more just society and world. Not the same as engaging with the creator of the world, though. Because I've met many people that are moral and good people that don't have a meaningful relationship with the creator of the universe. They're doing what they think is right, but to what avail and for what purpose? Do I want people to be good and kind neighbors? Yes, but do I want people to come into relationship with Jesus even more? Absolutely. And I want that goodness and that kindness to be a reflection of something eternal and meaningful. Because I can do all the good in the world, but if I don't serve Jesus, what's the purpose? Luke 9, 51 through chapter 10, verse 2 says, Now it happened as they journeyed down the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And to another also he said, Lord, I will follow you, but lead me first and go and bid farewell to who, those who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No. Having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, here's a few things you got to understand. Jesus is not being a jerk. Stop saying, man, why would he say that right after somebody died? What he wants is he wants you to stop making excuses and he wants you to respond. He's called you to something. Are you going to do it or not? We have all the excuses in the world. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough influence. I'm not sure where to begin. He's called you to do something. Go and do it. He has equipped you and he has given you what you need to do the work. Go do the work. It's not about how many souls did you get saved last week. It's about, am I becoming who God created me to be? We're often scared, but let me tell you, rejection is not the worst thing in the world, and you will not be perfect in how you do it. But that doesn't mean God hasn't called us to something. And then third, that you need to understand from that passage is, you are best in a team. In other words, in community. He doesn't ask them to go alone, but he sends them with another. That's for encouragement, support, resources, ideas, vision, plan making. All these things are possible when we do this with someone. You're not called to go alone into the world and to do this alone. You're called to be in community. I tell people all the time, you do not have to go to church to know God. However, you cannot fully know God outside of community. So you better be with a group of believers who are understanding and reading and challenging and thinking and building up and looking at and evaluating. You've been called to come together. Don't forsake the gathering together of believers. Is that always easy? No. It's time-consuming. It's effort-inducing. Getting here on a Sunday morning can be really hard. It can be so difficult. 
And yet it says, you want to know God? Get together in a community of people and discover who he is. So here's some conclusions if we want to help people discover God. Number one, discovering God is a lifelong journey. So my first question is, am I open to learning and discovering no matter what age, no matter what situation in life? The Jewish term, Leben literally means my situation in life. And they will worship God no matter what their situation in life. Which means, it doesn't matter if you're old or young. The Sitzenleben means I will worship God. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. I will worship God. It doesn't matter if things are going well or things are going really bad. Sitzenleben, I will worship God. Situation in life doesn't matter. I'm going to worship the God that created me. So am I open to learning and discovering no matter what situation I'm in? Am I willing to change my already established beliefs and preconceived ideas about Jesus when I realize they're my preconceived ideas? Am I willing to not change who Jesus is, not morph and shape him, but to become more like him sometimes means I have to stop doing what I like to do. And then the third question is, will I help others in their journey to discover God by giving them a safe place, time to grow and discover as they come in, and love them through their journey even if it's not the same decisions and path I would take? Am I willing to do that? Because if I want to go back to my mission statement and says, create a safe place where people can discover God. Am I willing to do what I need to do to help others discover God? Are you willing to invite people into your home? I'm not saying you have to. I'm just asking if you're willing. Are you willing to share a meal with people? Are you willing to go to a meal with people? Are you willing to step up and teach or volunteer in an area that maybe isn't in your comfort zone? Are you willing to do what you need to do to help us move forward as a congregation and help yourself move forward in your growth process? These are the questions that I'm asking. Next week, we're going to hear from one of our missionaries, our missionary to Russia. And uh, it'll be a great time to discover one of the ways that we're partnering with people around the world. You know, we try to put up our bulletin board. We try to let people know what's happening. To me, missions isn't about, you know, how many people are doing this or how many people are doing that. To me, missions about this. We're called to send. Are we doing that as a church? We have seven missionary partners right now. Some are global. And we have a couple that are local. I don't ask for extra money for that. We take it out of our budget of our tithes and our offerings. But my question is, how do we better engage with what we say we believe in and we're partnering with? And we list, you know, we make the list once a year. And at our annual meeting, you'll be able to see our financial side. And we do that. But how can we better partner with those that are out there doing what we say we value. And that's why I, you know, I want to have him come and speak so that you can see one of our partners and what we're doing. You know, 
any of our missionaries that are global, when they're in town, I invite them to come and say hello and greet our church. Sometimes we have hosted a dessert or a dinner or something. But it's really because I want you guys to connect with them. So I hope that you'll come out next week. I hope that you'll connect with our missionary. I hope that you'll hear a little bit about what he's doing. Because whether you realize it or not, if you contribute here, you're partnering with him. So thanks for your partnership. Um, Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, and I thank you for your love and your grace. God, I thank you that in spite of my failures, they're washed away. In spite of everything, my greatest efforts, which are meaningless and futile, you look at them and you honor those and you bless those. God, may we be a people who are more like you, a people who look to expand your kingdom, not for the growth of a single organization, but for the growth of a kingdom that's greater than ourselves. And thank you and praise you for all you do in your name. Amen. I want to thank everybody who came out to get blood yesterday. Um, we will do another blood drive in February, so start saving up your blood because we want it again. And um, every year on, uh, on Women's Retreat Weekend, I buy donuts. That's my contribution. So it, normally I have them out before church, and I intended to today. So if you came with your kids super hungry, sorry. But there are donuts. So please grab a donut, stick around, have some coffee, enjoy. There's enough donuts that if you start with one, we should be okay to get everybody through. So yeah, I really bought that many. So please stick around. If you have to go, I totally understand. But grab a donut and talk with some people around you. Thanks. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.